0: For urbanites, the environment can feel like something far away and separate from us. We often think the environment means forest and coast, mountains and prairies. But urban environments aren't just critical to how we interact with the world. They're where 56% of the world's population lives, and where an estimated 70% will live by 2050. As a result, the way we build our cities has profound impacts on our climate and the world around us. So How are we preparing for a world where more and more people live in cities? What are we doing to make our cities more livable and sustainable? And what does the future of urbanism in Houston look like? I'm Weston Twardowski, an instructor in Rice University's Environmental Studies Program and the Program Manager of the Deluvial Houston Initiative, and you're listening to Gulf Streams on KPFT Houston, where we talk with leading experts and community leaders to better understand the environmental problems and potential solutions Facing our community. So, today on Gulf Streams, we're speaking with two officials from the city of Houston, Margaret Wallace Brown, Director of Planning and Development, and David Fields, Chief Transportation Officer. Margaret, David, welcome. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Thanks for having us. Hi there.
0: And so, just to start us off, can you talk a little bit about both what you do for the city, but also how you found yourselves in these roles?
1: Uh, I'll start. Margaret Wallace Brown, I am the director of the department. And um, so, I joined the city in. 1986 uh, during the um, one of our de- re- recessions in Houston thinking that I would that it would be a safe place to land for a couple of years um, I am almost a lifetime Houstonian grew up in in the Clear Lake area went to the University of Houston for college and have stayed um, in the Houston area my whole it, really in downtown Houston my whole um, adult life and I thought this would be a great way to kind of learn and to experience public service for a couple of years and um, Lo and behold, 38 years later, I am the director, worked myself up through the ranks of the department doing some of the most fascinating things that you could do in this city, whether it was census outreach or annexation or development services work, neighborhood planning. Um, It's been just kind of an amazing career that has fed me in many, many different ways.
2: So sure, hi, I'm David Fields. I'm the city's chief transportation planner. Um, my grandparents were immigrants to the United States. They moved to the Lower East Side in New York City. Um, them and and siblings on both sides never learned how to drive. Never owned a car their whole lives. Um, and I spent a lot of time with them when I was growing up. We would take the subway everywhere. And then at some point we stopped taking the subway. We took the bus. And I was a kid. It all seemed like fun to me. <laughs> then we stopped taking the bus. We walked around their neighborhood. And then we stopped walking on one side of the neighborhood and went to the other park and the other grocery store. Never understood why. Um, years later, my father explained to me, well, your grandparents were just happy to be in the United States. They had escaped war. They were I never one to complain. Um, but it got to the point that they couldn't walk down the steps to the subway. It was just too much mm-hmm. for them. So they took the bus and they were going to be fine with it. And then walking even up the three steps to get on the bus ended up being too much for them. Mm. So they walked in their neighborhood and it was a place they loved. And then they couldn't cross the big street on one traffic signal cycle. Um, So they stopped going to the good grocery store with the good fruit that my grandmother liked and we stopped going to that playground. We just went to the other side. And I realized that each one of those things were completely in our control. Mm. There's nothing law, there's nothing biblical. It's how we have built our places. And if we built it one way, we can build it another way. So my mission as a planner is to create places my grandparents could live. And when Mayor Turner um, and Director Wallace Brown were looking for somebody to lead the transportation group, it was just the perfect opportunity to help Houston get to that next step.
0: Thank you so much. Those are really exciting. It's it's wonderful to hear both about your separate backgrounds, but also that you're you know clearly thinking very uh, very long term about what this city needs to look like and what those priorities are. So I, I just want to start off by um, addressing a little bit of the reasons that I'm excited to have you with us today. Uh, and that, that's that urban design plays this really critical role in how we build more sustainable cities. In particular, urban sprawl creates this range of environmental problems. And when I talk about that folks tend to think of cars and imagine that it's just the air pollution that's a primary concern, and that's a factor, um, one that arguably is getting better with electric cars, still a little bit of a tomorrow issue. Um, but actually, I'm really thinking about a lot of land use. And I'm thinking about, you know, we, we know flooding is a concern in Houston. We know infrastructure is a, a critical to how we move and exist around town. And these are problems that Sprawl really directly exacerbates, uh, both in new exurban development that chews further into prairie lands and wetlands that help us protect us from flooding. Uh, and, and the further that we build out, it gets harder and harder to maintain that infrastructurally like you were just describing, that makes it easy for people to get around in in myriad ways. Um, And so the Houston metro area, I just want to take a moment to recognize is about 10,000 square miles, which is larger than Delaware, New Jersey, Connecticut, Vermont. Um, And one of the things we can do to address this is thinking about density and how to densify our cities. And I know that's something that you've been working a lot on in thinking of different ways to live in Houston and exist in Houston. So that's a lot of prefacing, but I really want to get into some of the really exciting work that's going on, thinking about things like infill development that I know we'll talk about. Um, So just to start us off, I, I I think one of the, the really exciting programs that you've been running is this livable cities, livable places initiative. Can, can you talk to us about what that is and why it's significant?
1: Certainly. So in 2020, we completed what we called the walkable places initiative, which mm. is an attempt to provide a safer pedestrian realm. It was really the city's first step into context-sensitive requirements for parking, context sensitive requirements for um, driveway width, and how um, buildings affected or or addressed the public realm, the street. Mm-hmm. and as as we looked at that, we we realized that we had created incentives for for development to focus around areas that were transit rich, that were developing more transit opportunities, more multimodal opportunities than those that weren't. Um, and so we thought that would that was a good step forward in helping, I guess guess let me step back just a moment and say that in the same way David says that the, the urban form is how we build things how we had built our development regulations were that we really were encouraging. It is easier for someone in in the Houston area to build a greenfield development than it is to build inside the city. Mm. Our rules really do promote the development of neighborhoods beyond our city limits. We make it easier. We, we go through the plating and the development and the permitting process easier than we do. It's much harder to build inside the city. And we see that in the number of single family and the number of developments that take place outside our city versus inside. And so, with this transit-oriented development, we thought we had taken a really strong step forward to helping promote in, inside the city, um, living through it for a couple of years, seeing what we, what we, not seeing what we expected to see was um, more development taking place inside the inner city. We started to look more carefully at what is it that's causing this development to still go outside. And this was really combined with the the housing affordability crisis that we're that we're in. Um, cities across the nation are having an affordability crisis. We have not built enough homes for Americans for twelve or fifteen years, and so now we're all in a place where we're trying to catch up. But what we are building are homes in Greatwood, in as Mayor Turner calls them, in the lands, sugarlands, woodlands. <laughs> um, and so what what he wants and what he encouraged was. Um, more development inside the city again increasing that density so we sat down and we looked at all of the rules that we have and what is in our rules that are creating increased cost for development inside mm-hmm. the city what are we why are we causing what is it that we're doing that's causing housing costs to go up land costs are separate and we can't really address that directly but what what in our rules and so livable places was a way of looking at our rules and Trying to redu- reduce what we could that could reduce the cost of building inside the city. Um, the, the greatest example I have is that f- um, four plexes, four plexes, six mm. plexes, they're ubiquitous in Houston. And if you grew up, if you became an adult in Houston in the 60s, 70s or 80s, you probably lived in one as an apartment. We haven't built – we haven't permitted a fourplex in Houston in probably 20-something years. Wow. They are just so hard to build because we require too much parking. We require mm. too wide a driveway. We require too many things that make them not pencil out. And so what can we do from the planning department's perspective to change the – the um, the rules associated with them, and we did, and so that's what livable places was all about. We increased the ability of somebody to put a garage apartment on the back of their, mm-hmm. in the back of their lot, or even just on their property in any way. We, um, they were limited to 900 square feet. Now they're 1,500 square feet. We've reduced the co- the parking required for them. Um, the four plexes, six plexes, even up to eight plexes, we've reduced the driveway and the parking, um, and then. Uh, we created something new. Houston has for many years had effectively a 1,400 square foot minimum lot size, Mm. which is uh, much smaller than what many, many other large cities in America have. And we've been touted as being progressive because of that over the years. But is 1,400 really as small as we can get and still provide good open space and error and good development, and so we looked at that and created what we're calling a courtyard-style development, where no maximum density, no minimum lot size as long as you provide adequate open space, and Mm. effectively it's 150 square feet of green space for every unit. Oh, wow. And so building these smaller homes, and they could be tiny homes, but they don't have to be. Um, They they could be a range of sizes. along around this green space and how it addresses the public street we liked parking behind we've reduced the parking required for them and we have already i mean this was something that just passed through city council this past summer and we've got a line of people waiting for this to be effective so they can start developing this product so many times in houston what we see is a detached and i don't mean detached single-family home i mean a detached a detachment from the public realm, mm. where you you drive you drive <laughs> from the street into your garage, and then you live in the back of your house in the backyard, and you don't have any really activity out front. Mm. What we're trying to do is create a better um, a better public realm, a better pedestrian realm, where there is more activity on the street. Maybe people will start using front yards more than they're using backyards, creating more community. The number one thing we learned after Harvey was how you rebounded after your flood had to do with who you were connected to, how closely you were connected with your neighbors, how closely you were tied to your community. And so all of that, all of those aspects of community life are what we brought into livable places. And all of these changes help encourage that. um, They encourage higher density, but they also encourage more connectivity. With the rest of the community,
0: I think that's, I mean, just incredible. One that you, you know, you're, the way you're thinking about community building, uh, you know, through urban design, the way that our, our cities actually shape our networks and, and who we're engaging with. We were just last week on the show talking about, yeah, uh, exactly those social ties post Harvey and how significant they are. Um, and I also, I love, you know, both that you're you're pointing us towards you know okay so we're doing really well in this regard but just because we're doing better than other places doesn't mean we still can't be doing better for ourselves um, but also is something that I think pops up so often and that people frequently talk about is that idea that well Houston has no zoning so you know we w- what's the problem you know it's we've already fixed that and those regulations those those individual minutiae that that really contribute to what we're able to build um, so over the last uh, since I believe 2010 the metro area has gained you know, a close to 1.5 million, it's like 1.3 million or something people in the metro area, and the city proper has actually shrunk a little bit. Um, and so, I mean, I think it's really fascinating to think about, oftentimes that is, that the line we kind of hear is, oh, well, people want single-family homes, they want this suburban-style living, and sure, certainly, of course, some people do, <laughs> but lots of other people don't. Lots of people enjoy living in cities, lots of people have, you know, desire this easy access to amenities that you're talking about, the kind of community that builds, um, the kind of walkability that you're talking about for your grandparents, David. I mean, it's it's really, really important to have, I think, that mix of things. Um, and so I'm so glad to hear that. I'm, I'm wondering if, if one of you, either of you want to talk more about, you know, that you've already said so much on just that community asset, but what does a livable community look like? And I'm thinking certainly that public facing, but also you brought up walkability, and I'm, I'm sure bikeability is around the corner too. What about other ways of, of getting around uh, for people who maybe can't drive or who maybe don't want to have, have, have to have a car
2: for every member of their family? Um, so I think it's everything you just said plus a little more context. There's certainly the personal choice that peop- some people would like to live uh, in a denser area, more proximate to destinations, to grocery stores and parks that they can walk or bike. Um, there's a fiscal aspect of it that we often kind of overlook, that the cost of transportation is just kind of miraculously covered in in a household budget. Um, But when we're smart about it, we think about the cost of housing plus the cost of transportation. Mm -hmm. So it may be cheaper to buy a house 30 miles west of downtown. But then when you add in the cost of buying at the very least one, probably two, possibly three cars for your household – and the gas, and the insurance at an average cost of a new car of $50,000, and even a used car of $35,000, and then all the annual costs beyond it, it is really impacting our household budgets. But those conversations tend to happen after the housing conversation. Mm. If I live here, it is cheaper for the housing itself. And we would do ourselves a great service as planners, as civil servants, to make sure people understand the package of their household budget going to these two major costs. And then when we start to say, look, if you want to go out there, great, that option is available, but you might actually save money if you decide to live here. And we have worked hard on the city side to eliminate all those regulatory barriers so that if you want to, it's available to you. And I think that's really kind of the, the beauty of local places that we have taken as much from our side as we can to make it easy to happen and then really let the market start to work.
0: I think, yeah, I think that's so significant. I'm thinking of this, you know, not to go too personal, but my, my mother uses a wheelchair and is, you know, unable to drive. And the idea she loves Houston and she loves visiting and also is very like, where can I be in Houston that I can get to things and get around easily without necessarily having to drive everywhere and so I mean I think exactly as you're saying there's a huge range of reasons people want different kinds of development Um, but yeah can you speak some to you know I I know a lot of people who are like well I'd love to walk around more I'd love to bike more but I don't necessarily feel comfortable and so what are some of the things the city is doing because I know there are initiatives going to try to make pedestrians bikers uh, folks who are using different forms of transit more comfortable in doing so.
2: Um, So a few years ago, the city took a look at its sidewalk ordinance, Mm. um, and in short version, um, the adjacent property owner is responsible for provision and maintenance of that sidewalk. That's a decision by city council, and it it happens uh, in different cities as well as in Houston. Um, But that also means, unlike our road network, which is the city's responsibility— Which, you know, we say we want a connected roadway network. So if you are driving and you get to a corner, there's a street for you to continue (laughs) on. We haven't set that policy on the sidewalk network. Um, So we have been working very hard to say, okay, that is starting point A. But there are other things we can do to start building out that network. So the city had established three uh, different smaller sidewalk programs, Uh, one um, led by the Mayor's Office of People with Disabilities, that um, if you live in a place and need a sidewalk, uh, the city will build a certain length of it to get you pretty much to the next big street. Um, There's a program to connect schools a certain distance with sidewalks. And then for major thoroughfares, there's also some funds. Um, And what we were finding is as developers were coming in, and they were required to build their own sidewalk as part of that first ordinance. There were just a lot of ways for them not to do it, mm. um, either call them loopholes or maybe uh, you know there might have been physical constraints about it. But the bottom line is the city was not getting the sidewalks that it had mm. wanted, even through its own regulation. Um, so uh, we worked uh, with a lot of different stakeholders to create, uh, and city council adopted what's called a, a construction sidewalk construction in lieu fee. If you're a developer um, and you are required to build a sidewalk, under certain circumstances, instead of not building it at all, you can decide to put money into a city fund, not build a sidewalk on your property, and the city will take that money and build longer sidewalks mm. as we collect the, those funds. Um, the, the sidewalk, the Fee Fund, is divided into different sectors. So 70% of those funds stay pretty close to your own neighborhood. Within proximity, and then 30% will be divvied up citywide uh, based on equity needs and and other factors like that because we know the the city doesn't develop at the same pace. Um, So that's a way to say, you know, the starting point is you as developer, you should be building your sidewalk. That's what we've said. Um, And really, that's ultimately easier for everybody. But in the cases that it doesn't work, we would rather have a sidewalk somewhere than no sidewalk at all. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so between the three programs we had, as well as this one, we are starting to see the sidewalk network start to pop up and populate a lot more than we had. And it's only been in effect since uh, March, and we're already starting to see that move in the right direction.
1: Yeah, I think part of our issue in Houston, though, is an awareness issue. And we, we probably need to do a better job of promoting um, or explaining the circumstances. I, I, I hear a lot from people that um everybody in houston drives everybody has a car everybody has two or three cars and when we were going through the livable places process i we heard that regularly in fact the the f-150 pickup let me tell you is the number (laughs) one car in houston if it has anything to do with the community engagement we did (laughs) um and but but what we but what we need to what we what i what i think i we failed to do and what i'd like to figure out how to do better is to help understand help Houstonians understand that no not everybody does drive mm-hmm. 48% of the households in Houston have one or fewer cars mm. Um, and a large percentage of that has is the zero car, and and they're all over the place. It's not like we're just in neighborhoods of lower income. There's there are any number of neighborhoods that have a high percentage of one or zero car. The households. first uh,
0: year and a half that I lived here, actually, I was in that. I believe eight percent of households with no cars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I understand exactly what you're talking about. <laughs>
1: and the the other issue, so so. We have to, as a community, stop imagining what's not true anymore, Mm. which is that we all drive. And we have to start realizing that our city is changing. Mm -hmm. And in the 30 years I've worked for the city, I have seen some amazing transformations for our city and have been part of um, a number of initiatives to help push it forward. And this... This latest few years, I think we have made more progress in making a city for the 21st century than we than we had possibly made in the past. But one of the issues is we, we all complain about traffic and, and how long we're in our cars. We can't build any more roadways. We cannot find any more space in our roads for more cars. And so... What we need to be doing is recognizing that not everybody drives, and not everybody should be driving, and we have to provide safe passage for those who don't, who those whether it's by choice or by um, by inability to buy a car. We have to provide safe passage for those people, and opening the conversation to that and how do we move people around this city in a more um, in, in on all in every way possible is where we need to be as a city. And that's what's so transformational about the work that David's doing with, um, with increasing uh, bicycle uh, infrastructure, with pedestrian infrastructure, Um, and and merging it with with automobile infrastructure as well and and increasing, and we've we've got billions of dollars of investment in transit in this city. And so how do we make it all work together and balance so that we're providing what Houstonians need today and in the future? You know, if we build for an auto-centric city today and say we're not going to be multimodal for another 20 years, well, if we build for auto-centric today, we're not going to be multimodal in 20 years. So- we've got to be looking 20 25 years ahead
0: i think some of what you're talking about there that's you know that that i've heard before from from <laughs> certain folks around town about you know oh we're moving towards autonomous vehicles anyway, so that's going to fix and it's like they still, they're still, still cars, they still take up the same amount of space, they're still on the roads in the same way. And so I think that attention to multimodal, to increasing our public transit options, to making biking, walking more realistic for more people, actually, exactly as you're saying, really helps with our traffic problems, which I think, yeah, most people in Houston have, particularly over the last couple of decades, really felt the traffic is is getting untenable. And as you point out, there's, there's not just a, a build more roads approach that's gonna magically fix that, so we have to think of, of these other solutions. One thing that I, I wanna, as, as we're on this transit topic, just talk about um, is, I, as I know, Vision Zero is an initiative the city's been running, um, and as we're thinking about you know, the, the safety aspect of things, can you talk a little about what that is and, and where that's heading?
2: Sure, as context, Vision Zero is the city's commitment that we will get to zero fatalities and serious injuries on our roads by 2030. And that sounds like a very lofty goal, And honestly, it is. Um, Each year for the last few years, over 300 people have died, and nearly Mm -hmm. 1,600 people have been seriously injured every year on our roadways. So yes, people may say that is a lofty goal, but what better goal could we have? Mm. Because every single person who dies is a family that doesn't have somebody coming home, is a part of our community that just goes missing, and again, completely within our control. As part of the Vision Zero plan, uh, Mayor Sylvester Sylvester Turner released uh, his executive order in 2019. Uh, We released the Vision Zero Action Plan in 2020, which was a uh, group effort of all the city departments you would imagine, planning and public works, health department, legal, all the mayor's offices, um, metro, the uh, Harris County, uh, eight... Houston Police Department, Houston Fire, everybody was around this table. Uh, HGAC is the regional planning body. Um, And we developed 50 actions which were not just planners doodling up on a board and thinking (laughs) of pie high things. These are very, very specific things that we are now implementing. The day after the release of the plan, Mm -hmm. we uh, formed what we call the implementation group, which is anybody who's listed as has a responsibility in the plan, we meet once a month to see how things are going. And we're very proud to say that we are starting to see results. So the plan was released at the end of 2020. Honestly, in 2021, not much had physically been done to show results. Um, So the numbers did climb a little that year. In 2022, for the first time, we saw crashes and fatalities start to go down and the first three quarters of 23, we're seeing a continuation of that trend. Mm. So we have a very, very long way to go. Um, we are still you know, about that at that 300, 1600 number, but we are one of the few cities that have very quantifiable actions with results coming through pretty quickly. Some of the best things and things that we're so proud of, every place that we have rebuilt using our updated standards and based on a Vision Zero uh, uh, safety approach, has shown a reduction in fatalities and crashes. Mm. We know when we rebuild, we rebuild right. And while we have about 80 fatalities for people biking on our roads since the release of the bike plan in 2017, not one of those was in a protected bike lane. Mm. So again, what we know is when we build correctly protected facilities that let people choose what mode they want to use, we build it safely, we build it right. The lesson to us is we need to do this faster. We need to get on building out the city's 1,800 miles of high comfort bike facilities that are in the bike plan. People are shocked when I tell them we have 400 miles built already. Okay, yes, I am shocked. (laughs) We have 155 miles somewhere in planning, design, or construction, Wow, which is fabulous. Other cities marvel when I say we have 400 miles built we are very very lucky to have great partners like houston parks board that is invested in our greenways where a lot of those bikeways are and the county that has helped us build on street stuff and the turzas and management districts Um, and only by doing this all together are we going to get there but our standards are better now Um, we know that when we do it we do it right and we are starting to see that uh, you know that progress being made that we will stand up in front of anybody and say if you believe Everybody should get home safely every single day. You should be a Vision Zero supporter.
0: That's yeah, that's exciting. I, I I wish I were a more comfortable biker. I'm I'm not, but you know things like this make me encouraged to try to try again. Um, so something that I, I wanted to talk about a little bit is moving back a little bit to the kind of livable places initiative. Um, I think folks often when they when they hear about some of these changes and oftentimes when they are looking around and seeing some of the changes coming to the city you know it's all that we're getting are these expensive townhouses and I can't afford that and I know affordability is actually something that you're really attentive to and thinking about and there are ways that that these approaches are really going to actually help us to keep the city more affordable so can you talk some to what the future of affordable housing in Houston looks like, but also how what your office is doing is actually really trying to make sure that we do have new affordable homes in the city.
3: So a
1: couple of the things that I've already talked about are really hallmarks for that. What a primary reason that your home costs as much as it does is the land that it sits on. Uh, Land can be 60 percent of the cost of a a home, a new home bought. Um, And when you're in greenfield development and you can do five thousand square foot lots um, out of out of nothing, the cost of the land is not so expensive. But when you're inside the city of Houston and you're doing infill development, and I'm sorry,
0: can you just define infill oh, development sure. for us? Oh, um,
1: sure. So let's imagine that you're in a neighborhood that's already been relatively established, and there's um, there is some commercial development, or there is a vac- there are a number of vacant lots in the development um, in the neighborhood. Th- when you build on those lots that are maybe one or two or three sizes big, that's infill. Mm. So you're not doing what's called greenfield development, which taking an, an open field and creating something new on top of it. You're coming back and almost kind of retrofitting homes mm. or, or, or development into a neighborhood. That's very expensive. You don't have the economies of scale that you're going to have when you're doing a, a large development. You've got um, – you've got the expenses of the construction for you know placing your equipment and 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 trying to be sensitive to the existing neighborhoods and so all of that is more expensive but the number one thing that adds to the cost is the cost of the land land inside the city of Houston let's just say inside the loop 610 is significantly more expensive than land outside and so when you when you require larger lots for developments you are in in effect forcing the home to be more expensive. Mm-hmm. And f- since the 90s, up until this new to, this new change, we have not allowed you to subdivide a 5,000 square foot lot into anything less than three smaller lots. And so those are small lots, yes, but those are still very expensive lots, which is forcing the, th- the, the three-story townhomes, which is forcing people to go up in order to get into recoup their investment, and that is creating the five, six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollar townhomes that we see. So, by allowing smaller lots, either through this courtyard style development that we're talking about, or um, or just being able to subdivide a lot into smaller pieces, mm. it will um, help reduce the cost. It may not, um, it, we may not be building three hundred thousand dollar homes as much as we'd like, but we will be building less than $600,000 and $700,000. Um, and then there's the, also the interest that there is a growing number of Houstonians, and I will say primarily younger Houstonians, that are really questioning whether or not they want to invest in homes, whether that's where they want to put their investment and actually buy a house. And so by increasing the ability to do smaller um, smaller rental properties inside neighborhoods that are, that are complementary to the neighborhood and not stand out like a sore thumb— which is the fourplexes plexes and, and those types of small rental units, by increasing the ability to do those, we're increasing the ability for people to rent homes, um, if that's what they want, at a lower cost also. So we believe that what we're doing is providing more homes, which will bring the overall price down, on smaller lots and in more neighborhood-friendly ways to to provide either buyers or renters uh, better opportunities, just increasing the opportunities that are available to
0: us. I mean I think that's really important because it is one of those things that we often hear about as you know oh here's a solution to the housing crisis here and at the end of the day it, there's a demand problem like a lot of people everybody needs housing like what it may look different for different families but everyone needs some kind of shelter and mm-hmm. so just increasing the opportunity to keep developing more housing I think is, is so so significant particularly in the city um so something that I wanted to to ask you about is you, you've mentioned the community, you've mentioned building uh, you know, for better publics and and better communities. I know something you're really attentive to is community-led design and community engagement. So as we were talking about changing Houston, and I think that can make folks a little antsy at times about, you know, oh, I don't want my neighborhood to change, I don't know how it's gonna change. Can you talk some about how do you go about engaging communities? How do you go about talking with the public to make sure that as we are changing the way our city is going to function, that there is community buy-in?
1: It's difficult. It's really difficult, especially in a city like Houston, where we have multiple languages and we mm-hmm. have multiple different cultures that we um, that we want to approach. We um, we do it in a variety of different ways. We are. Um, I will admit, you know, sometimes we're less successful than we'd like, and so we're always looking for better ways. We have found that, um, you know, the, the the old process of the planning department establishing a meeting at a community center and sending out notification either in the mail or even by email that says, come to our meeting, doesn't work. We have to be very intentional about finding out who do we want to talk to and finding where they are, meeting people where they are in their um, point in life. And so is that. Is that going to a neighborhood's community, you know, a neighborhood, a civic club meeting that's already been established, or is that going to a church or a mosque or a temple or um, a place where people are, either ga- are already gathering, or as David and his team do quite frequently, um, Outdoor festivals, and, and in October we're, we're at a lot of um, festivals because the weather's so terrific. Just listen, and, and, and part of it is listening. We, Again, the the old mantra used to be we're going to go out and we're going to tell you what we're doing. And these days what we're trying to do is we're trying to go out and listen and we're trying to ask you what is it that mm. that is what needs to be improved here? what what works and how can we improve what what doesn't work? And so what are the the pieces that we can bring to the table to help make this a better place instead of telling you what you need? we we try to listen
2: more. Yeah, one thing that um, I agree with everything Margaret just said, uh, that we've been working really hard when we go to a community is ask them, don't tell us the solution you want right now, mm. especially when we're talking about transportation because very often we'll go to a civic club, we'll go to a neighborhood meeting, and they'll say, we want a stop sign here.
0: Mm.
2: A- and that may or may not be the right thing, but there also may or may not be reasons we can or cannot do it. But if they tell us this corner feels unsafe, mm. there are drivers speeding, or there's a sight line issue, or you know we try to cross and there's no cross, whatever it is, then we can come back with a package of things we know we can do and we can say any one of these we think are going to solve your problem and then we can get to success but if they say we want a stop sign and for some reason we can't do a stop sign then we failed mm. so really focusing on identif- let the community and we want them to identify the issue to solve is and let us come back with the toolbox that could get them there well, and it sounds like some of what you're talking about is is broadening the
0: possibilities of a sort. That you know, I think, yeah, you know, in our in our heads, we're kind of a stop sign that'll that'll fix this problem. Um, in reality, it's you know, we can we can reshape what this whole intersection looks like. We can rethink how that works. We can, you know, if we're if we're getting fewer cars in this area, then there's ways of dealing with that. Which you know, to, to go back to that issue of you know, how do we reduce some of that traffic? How do we get some of those cars off the roads? I know that uh, Metro has been doing you know, huge work building out new networks. And so something that I think is really interesting um, in thinking about these transportation networks, but also alongside the, these communities that are popping up, is transit oriented development, which is a, a little buzzwordy. And so I'm going to let you explain what that is. But I, want, I wonder if you can talk some about how transit oriented development <laughs> is reshaping the city and what's next in, the, in, in that arena.
2: Sure, and this is a big topic. Um, <laughs> I know, we don't have to go into the whole thing. There's but... <laughs> a lot I want to tell you about this. Uh, so first on the definition, so transit-oriented development is um, in development, land uses, traditionally a mix of residential and some retail, often office as well, um, but anchored around high-frequency, high-capacity transit mm. so that at least one trip by the household every day doesn't need to be a, a driving trip. Mm. You're basically living near a rail station, a, a frequent bus service, because at least one of the people living there probably are going to use that to commute to work. But that only kind of, that undersells the story because the, the mixed uses are right around you, then your trip to the park, your child's trip to school, certain trips to the grocery store, maybe not the weekly big for everything, but you know, I need a little, uh, some fruit or some milk or something, is within a walking distance and I don't need one more car trip for those things. Mm. Um, What we've realized is TOD, transit-oriented development, is almost a misnomer because the transit might be the least important piece (laughs) of it, that mixed-use, proximate, safe walking environments have got to come before the transit does. Um, Metro has been working on this for a while and have really uh, teed up their game recently. Um, They're working on looking at their park and ride sites. So basically, just big parking lots, parking garages that have that high capacity, high frequency transit, but don't have any of those other pieces. Mm -hmm. And what if we flip it and replace some of that surface parking, possibly with a garage, and put in those mix of land uses on site. So you still have the people using their transit very often, but you have those other land uses picking up a lot of those vehicle trips instead. Um, So you'll start to see this at most recently at Attics Park and Ride out in the Energy Corridor and Tidwell um, Transit Center at the end of their university corridor line. Um, If I can go transit another minute. (laughs) Um, So one thing that was mentioned earlier is that we have to get past these false narratives defining Houston. Um, People for a long time have said Houston's a driving city. Everybody drives. Well, that's not a true statement. There are certain communities that absolutely most of the trips are driving. And then there are other neighborhoods where that's not true at all. There are different times of day and times of year and, and days of the week. And w- it is really important that we start to see that me as a middle-aged white guy has one traditional pattern, if you, know, if you were to aggregate us, um, but different families are looking very, very differently. And mm-hmm. especially after COVID, these trips are just so different than they used to be. We need to open our eyes that not everybody is doing the same thing, and they're certainly not doing it every trip, every single day. People have the way to not just be yes drivers or no drivers, but may walk a trip, may take transit a trip, may bike with their kids for a trip, may do any of these things and still be okay driving some of the time, but not necessarily every single time. And the proof is that before COVID, commuting trips to downtown what people think of as the ultimate trip that everybody drives, 40% of downtown commuters were not driving alone. Wow. They were riding park and ride buses. They were walking and biking. They were carpooling. And what's interesting is when you ask people, how did you commute? Almost nobody says, I took the bus. They say, I took the park and ride. Mm -hmm. And I don't particularly care call it whatever you want as long as you and 39 of your closest friends are on a vehicle (laughs) that are all sharing getting downtown that is a win and proof that houston's a multimodal city
0: well and i think that not only underscores that you know traffic reduction we were talking about but also uh you know our, our researcher sienna who's been doing a really great series on kind of urban design around houston has been talking with a lot of folks who are building new mixed um sorry, mixed use <laughs> thank, thank yes. communities. And so, I mean, I'm curious, you know, from I think you have more of a bird's eye view on this. You know, do you see this as something that's really growing in popularity and desire around the city?
1: Yes, I do. And so just spent some time out in Los Angeles at the Urban Land Institute fall meeting mm. where uh, developers from, you know, across America come and commiserate with each other. <laughs> um, the the number one topic of, you know, kind of office development is really struggling these days with mm-hmm. the highest interest rates, the working from home, the the struggles that downtowns across America are, are kind of experiencing. Um, office is not the the most profitable place to put your money these days. But the one thing about an office development that does make it more profitable, more easy to build, and, and much more sustainable is if it has ancillary uh, ancillary uses with it. So an office building off by itself in some suburban area isn't necessarily going to be a successful and um, full operation. But if it has with it ground floor retail, maybe it has some apartments next door, maybe it does have um, other uses, other land uses around, around it. And if it has access to transit, it significantly increases the the um, the attractiveness of that building, and mm-hmm. so what you look at, you're right in Houston. What we are seeing so much of in in the the areas that we would expect it, as well as the areas that we don't expect it, we are seeing multi use um, combined, um, just buildings that are combining housing and retail, and even though retail's struggling, there's there is still retail that's successful in Houston, and so if that is all created around areas that we can also get to easily on either foot, bike, or individual cars, transit, any number of modes you wanna choose, then that's what's gonna make that development successful. And that's also what's gonna make the neighborhood surrounding it a little bit more successful. Because as, as David pointed out, I'm, I, I, I drive to work every day, but I also walk to my grocery store um, not every not every time I go, but I do walk. And I walk down the street to a coffee shop that I like. And I'll walk to the arts and crafts store across the street or I'll take my bike or something like that. So I am somebody that uses different modes um, frequently. And if I've got all of that within varying areas, varying distances from my home, then I have those opportunities and those options so that I can choose whatever whatever mode I want on any one day. You know, the other thing it does is it helps... One of the things that... Metro's um, efforts in their transit-oriented development and some of these other mixed-use developments are doing um, is it helps bring a variety of income levels to our neighborhoods. Mm. Houston has over the past, one of our challenges is that over the past 20 years, we've become really bifurcated income-wise. We have neighborhoods that for generations were multi-income. I think of, of Montrose as the number one example. For those of us that, you know, We're in college in the 70s and the 80s in Houston. um, Many of us rented those fourplexes, garage apartments, behind huge homes that were really valuable. Um, So we had a big mix of people um, and incomes in neighborhoods. We really in Houston don't have that as much anymore. Mm. And so being able to provide of arising a variety of housing types that can service a bunch of income levels with the right way of trans of moving around and mobility options is really going to make Houston more of a um, it's it's a much more sustainable way of building neighborhoods and you know, of building cities than than to have um, you know I think we're better off without a zoning code because we have this ability to have more of a mosaic development pattern than just big blocks of of land that that serve one or, few, or, you know, very few uses and very few types of people.
0: I Maybe this is beyond the, the scope of, <laughs> of what our conversation can cover, but I'm just so fascinated hearing you talk about what it was like, you know, back when you were a student, because um, that that was before my time in Houston. Um, and it, it's fascinating to think about in many ways what you're suggesting is actually, sounds like in some ways, a return to what we used to have. Um, and so I'm curious, can you talk at all about why you think Houston has changed where that's not really the dominant form of housing anymore, where we have had these changes that have made it more difficult to build these these forms of housing that you're talking about and that we've gotten further away from these kind of uh, maybe more traditional approaches to city building.
1: I, I think it's part of, partly our rules and I think it's also partly that we haven't been building housing. Mm. Um, and so if, you know, let's talk about a fourplex for example we believed at the time in the 70s that you know that well since the 30s those were those were built and those were built in neighborhoods they were um, built alongside single family homes and so there was this mix of ownership and rental and incomes and you know personality types and styles and needs and 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 then as we looked at them and our fire codes got well, no. We need to protect this, and we need to have that, and we need to layer on this rule, and then we layer on that rule because we're all trying because we're trying to you know improve the safety, and and, and there's nothing wrong with that. But let's look at the results of some of these rules versus what um, the what they do cause. And you've not been able to really even repair a fourplex without bringing everything up to code. And so many of them have gone into disrepair, and we've not. And for every naturally occurring affordable home that gets torn down in Houston, if we're not replacing it with an affordable, with a naturally occurring affordable housing house, then then what we are do is we're increasing the, the, the cost of housing in Houston. And that's really what happened in many of our neighborhoods as things um, – as property values started to increase, we would remove affordable housing and put in mm. more expensive housing. And it just exacerbated the situation. And so um, what we're trying to do is ba- is infuse smaller units again back into that neighborhood to help, to help um, again, create a mix of, of people who live there to support the retail, to support neighborhood services, to, um, you know, uh, my example is, I have a thirty-year-old daughter who grew up in in our neighborhood, and when she started looking for homes, she couldn't afford one, and so now she's. Living, I feel her pain. Yeah, <laughs> and so the um, the local AARP group is very intentional about their um, efforts to create homes that sustain us th- across a lifetime, mm. and um, and we don't we haven't done that in the past, and so um, you know as you as your kids move out of. Your home. They move into apartments, usually in a different neighborhood because they can't afford where maybe they can't afford where you where they grew up. Um. These backyard garage apartments, these smaller homes can give them an opportunity to have their, you know, a foothold in the neighborhood. It's also a way for you to maybe bring in your grandparents or your parents who can no longer be by themselves in their homes. It's a way to have them in your backyard a little closer, but not exactly on top of you. And so...
0: (laughs) I've been thinking about that a lot, this conversation.
1: (laughs) So all of these options, we haven't really... We haven't really been giving the diversity and the variety of homes. Mm. We haven't been building that variety that we needed to build for for decades.
0: I think that's you know so significant too that you were you were talking earlier about you know younger people thinking about renting more, maybe wanting different kinds of options. Um, and as a as a youngish person, uh, you know, I will say that. I also I talk to a lot of folks who absolutely there's that desire there's desire for mixed use housing for different kinds of neighborhoods for different experiences um, absolutely what you were saying about the ability to move your parents into you know something in the backyard maybe where you still have. 10 to 20 feet of safety space, but you know, they're, they're much closer. Um, so is, we're running out of time now, but I, I do want to turn things over and just ask, you know, I, I'm so privileged to speak with both of you and thank you so much for coming and, and sharing all this uh, and having this wonderful conversation. But, you know, as you are thinking about the future of Houston, a place that we love to talk about how much it changes and how much Houston is always changing, what do you think is next for Houston? What are the big things coming down? What are what are the things we should be paying attention to? And what are you particularly maybe excited about as as initiatives that you're running? What are the things you'd like to share that you think are really exciting for us to know about the future of the city? Um, so I have two.
2: First, I'm gonna, Fantastic. Start, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm gonna start with actually location. Mm. Um, so I'm still a relatively new transplant. I've been here almost four years now, um, exploring different neighborhoods. And I'm kind of in love with the East End. Mm. Um, East End, Second Ward, down to Edo, Third Ward. That area of the city has never had kind of the, the, the stardom of some of our other neighborhoods. And they are booming in this wonderfully kind of homegrown way. This is not a whole lot of foreign... Uh, you know, uh, chain stores coming in and changing it and just being any place USA. These are, Edo is a great example of what was definitely not there 10 years ago, is totally new and vibrant and feeling very good. It's a very interesting thing that I think Houston on the national scale doesn't get enough credit for, mm. just how unique a lot of these neighborhoods are. It's not just, you know, Service roads on the side of the freeway, over and over again, you know, rinse and repeat. These are very unique places that I, you know, I really encourage people in town to go see, and people when they're coming from outside to go see. On our side, on the programmatic side, um, we talked for a little bit about parking. Um, minimum parking requirements um, are part of our development code. Even though in livable places, we worked hard to to make them context sensitive. I believe we're ready to stop thinking of parking as its own thing, but as a conversation about access. So certainly, you know, we've defaulted to everybody drives, so we need to provide so much parking because that's how we provide access to the site. But if we take a step back and we say, lots of people get here by lots of ways, mm-hmm. how do we provide access to each site? And parking is probably going to be a part of that for a very long time. But why are we not saying there is good bus service here? How do we take advantage of that and lower the needed parking? You know, making sure we have the walkability so that, you know, somebody can walk across the street to their coffee shop um, and not need a parking space for it. And it is that reframing of the conversation from parking to access that I think just unlocks so much community building. Thanks.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of things on our <laughs> plate. Um, that. Um, so Houston, Houston is and this amazing gumbo of energy <laughs> and ideas. And I, I'm not sure I'm qualified to to throw out what I think what's next for Houston is. Mm-hmm. I, I think that Houstonians are going to tell us, and that's one of the. That's one of the joys of being um, planning director is that I get told what Houston um, will be as much as I tell people what it will be. And, and you know, I think we're, we're a city that is on the cusp of big things, um, been here since the 70s, and I've watched so much growth and so much change. You know, I—my— um, I remember the bumper stickers that say last one in Michigan turn out the lights. And <laughs> um, I, you know, the the fact that we had more U-Hauls coming into Houston every day than, than any other than all of the cities in America combined or whatever that statistic was. I, I think we're we're gonna be there again. I think that um, and it may not be total and absolute population growth, but I think it's gonna be um, you know, a, a a real firming up of the inner the inner city the core of our of our being being um you know continuing this diversity continuing this amazing city that we are and i'm i'm anxious just to see where it goes
0: well thank you both so much this has been a fantastic conversation i've, I've learned so much I'm, I'm so excited to have gotten to speak with you both and i so appreciate your time
1: thank you thank you
0: And now we'll go over to our researcher, Jaden Bray-Boyce, who has an update on how to get involved around town this week.
3: Hey, y'all. I hope you're doing well. This week, I have two volunteer opportunities for you. If you fall between the ages of 16 and 100, I have the perfect job for you. On November 25th, sign up and volunteer at Beauty's Community Garden. From 9 a.m. to 11 a.m., volunteers have the chance to help plant and attend a garden volunteer's guided gardening experience. If gardening excites you, then go to the website volunteerhouston.org and select November 25th, and then all you have to do is click the link, sign up, and you're good to go. This opportunity is a little bit different, but with it being the week of Thanksgiving, consider volunteering to help serve hot meals to those in need on November 22nd, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Help make this Thanksgiving season a little more special by providing hot and filling meals to those who need it most, along with supplies like personal care items and blankets. You must be 10 years or older to participate, but if you're under 18, please make sure that you have a guardian sign off. So with that, I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your day and a very happy Thanksgiving.
0: Thanks, Jaden. Next time on Gulf Streams, we're speaking with Rice Director of Sustainability Richard Johnson and the University of Houston Sustainability Director Elizabeth Clark about measures universities are taking to be cleaner, as well as how they're training our youth for lifelong careers around making the world greener. If you have questions or ideas for what you'd like featured on Gulf Streams, leave a voicemail at 713-348-4081 or email me at westint at rice.edu. Gulf Streams is a co-production of KPFT Houston and Rice's Center for Environmental Studies, with support from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation and the Rice Sustainability Institute's Eco Studio. Produced by Weston Twardowski, co-produced by Joseph Campana. Audio engineer Rico Enriquez. Research support provided by Jaden Bray Boyce and Sienna Yen. Stay tuned for the R show with Ronnie Renfro and Tom Richards here on KPFT Houston.